Good morning. It's good to be here in the holy temple of God. You say that's quite a way to, to start. Uh, we'll get the new clicker isn't working. Okay, well, we'll do without that. Back to what I was saying, it's good to be a part of the family of God in the holy temple of God, and you say, holy temple, this doesn't look like a holy temple. I know the walls here aren't holy, and I know the temple here isn't anything like um, Herod's temple that we had just seen a few weeks ago, or what was left of it, the Temple Mount, um, or Solomon's temple. But according to the passage that we're going to get into this morning, we are in the Holy Temple because we are in church with other believers. And we'll talk about that more this morning. Um, I was going to talk a bit about my trip or our trip to Israel, but I don't think I'll get into that. Um, I will say one of my favorite spots was the Sea of Galilee, but also the Temple Mount um, was an incredible spot in the middle of that huge temple mount that Herod put together, Herod the Great, the great architect, there was the Dome of the Rock. In the middle of the Dome of the Rock is a place that we, um, non-Arabs, non-Muslims, are, are not allowed to go. Um, but it was an amazing spot. And below that was the Wailing Wall, where the Jews today are still crying out for the Messiah. I think of Jesus sitting up on the Temple Mount and telling um, his disciples that all this temple is going to be destroyed. Um, and it happened exactly like was said. And our guide said that when Caesar knew that Titus was about to win the battle in AD 70 against the, um, the Jews, he said, don't destroy that temple. It's too beautiful. We want, there's too much gold there. Don't destroy it. Well, Titus, in his fervor, decided to destroy it anyways and knocked every um, rock, like Jesus said, down, um, and the reason it was knocked down is because after he was finished and burned the temple down, Caesar said to Titus, why'd you do that? He said, go back and get all the gold out of that there is, and they fervently searched for every piece of gold that Caesar built the calice, uh, the case. Um, so much for that. Let's get into Ephesians 11 to 22. I'd like to an amazing passage, and as you, um, just so many nuggets there, um, I think this passage especially talks about the church. Now, you think the title I have this morning is, Why Do We Do Church? Members of a church. I'd like to answer that question this morning, um, found in Ephesians chapter 2 here. It's been three years since the pandemic of 2020. We saw many divisions in our country and maybe even had some divisions here at our church. We saw Satan dividing people and churches it was devastating to the body of Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to be reminded again not to let those divisions divide us. God clearly is looking for unity in his church. He's not only, this not only is important in keeping the church together, but it's the reason for church. And I'll talk about that some more. I want to highlight three things this morning. First thing I'm going to highlight is we all have the same problem. I say I want to highlight it. Paul highlighted it here in these 11 verses. We all have the same problem. We know what that problem is. I think we know by now it's sin. All of us here have that same problem. We all have the same solution. 
And I think we all know what that solution is. Somebody give it to me. What is the solution to our sin problem, according to Ephesians? Jesus Christ, absolutely. And we all have the same opportunity I'm going to talk about this morning, and that's to be a united part of God's family, the church. Our church here at Weavertown is a part of God's family, and when we become members of this church, we become members of the household of God. I know this is also talking about the universal church, and a lot of people say, well, that's talking about the universal church, but I like to say it this way. It's played out so much better, so much practically within the local church. So I want to say um, we have an opportunity to be part of the family of God, an opportunity to play that out practically as we are members of the church, whether it's here at Weavertown or whatever church we are part of. What we have before us this morning is a passage of Scripture that beautifully describes Jesus' ability to take people who are hostile and divided and bring them together into the family. And we saw that in Israel. You saw the hostility of the Jews and the Gentiles still today, uh, the Jews and the Arabs, and probably even just the Jews and the Gentiles. As we were on the plane ride over there, um, we were mostly with Jewish Orthodox or religious Jews, and at 12 o'clock they got up and went to the front of the plane, um, or to the side of the plane, um, and we're praying for the Messiah for hours, or for probably an hour. Um, we saw the hostility that was um, still there um, between the Jews and the Gentiles, and we'll talk about that a bit in the passage today. The concept of bringing a divided people together into one family is why God started church. I'm convinced God is looking to show a broken, divided world what it looks like to come together and not only love each other, but to, build upon a but to build a tabernacle together for us to worship in. That's what we're here this morning. Together, um, worshiping in the tabernacle. Um, and that tabernacle is where Christians are gathered together. And Christ can be glorified in a unity, um, in, a, in a group that works together and worships together. The church coming together in a holy unity is the perfect picture of worship. And why the church today is the place where God's tabernacle was built. He doesn't need the Jewish temple or the temple mount to build this temple to show his glory. He can do it here at Weavertown this morning, today, and every day as we worship together. There's an ancient Jewish story about two brothers who lived in a farm beside each other. The older brother had a wife and a few children, and the younger brother was, wasn't married and had no family. I'm going to tell you this story just to help us understand a little bit what it means um, to, to come together in unity. Two brothers loved each other. They enjoyed living next to each other. They helped each other with their projects and that sort of things. Well, as the story goes, one day the older brother looked over at his younger brother's farm and thought to himself, hey, you know, he only has himself. If something happens to my brother, then who's going to take care of him? I have a wife, and our boys are strong and growing. I'll be fine. So the older brother decided he'd go over to his grain bin at night and load up a sack of grain and take it over to his little his younger brother's grain bin, and return under cover of the darkness and go back to bed. Meanwhile, one night, the younger brother looked over at his older brother's farm and thought to himself, hey, you know, all I have to do is take care of myself. If something happens to me, I'm fine. It's just one person. But my brother over there has a wife and children. If something happens to him, then how will he support his family? So the younger brother decided to go out early in the morning and go over to his grain bin, load up a sack of grain, and take it over to his older brother's grain bin. Well, the two boys did this for weeks and never bumped into each other. 
And then one night, the older brother got out a little later, and the younger brother got up a little earlier, and they each went on their way to the grain bins, filled up the sack of grain, started off in the other's form, and of course this night, under the bright reflection of a full moon, the two brothers bumped into each other and finally realized what was going on all along as they dropped their bags of grain and embraced and thanked God for each other. Now, according to Jewish legend, God looked down from heaven in that moment. He said, this spot of their embrace will be the spot where I build my temple. For my presence is made most clearly made known when brothers dwell together in unity. Now, we know that story probably isn't true. Um, it's just a Jewish legend, but it's a good picture of what it means to come together as a church. Um, the tabernacle of Jesus Christ is here where three or more gather together in unity. Um, that's what church is. In order for us to do that as a church, we need to start by remembering who we were without Christ. And we're going to start again in the first two verses, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read them again. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made with hands, that at the time ye were without Christ, being, alienate, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So it starts out with us understanding. It starts with our sin. If we're going to work together, if we're going to be together in unity, we first need to understand who we are. We're sinful humans. Um, we're sinful in need of a Savior. And we found that in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2 also. We here at Weavertown have to understand our sinfulness. We had no hope. We were without God in the world and we need to remember this. Verse 11, Paul highlights circumcision, which has clearly revealed a sore spot to the Gentiles because it reminded them that they were not a part of the family of God. They were separated from Christ. They were the outside looking in, and they had no hope. They were hopeless. That's what verse 12 says. Having no hope and without God in the world. A phrase without God actually is the Greek word atheos which sounds like and is the English word atheists. So we were all atheists before we found Christ. Now we say, well, we believed in God, but we just didn't, weren't born again. Actually, we were all somewhat atheists without God. The Gentiles were lost before Christ. They were atheists. They had no chance. Now, I know it's a little hard for us to comprehend we are Gentiles, by the way. All of us here, I think, are Gentiles. And we probably kind of think ourselves a little more like the Jews who were cho God's chosen people. And I, when we talk about, think about Gentiles, I often kind of have a hard time comprehending that because I think um, we are kind of special, right? Um, I think that's kind of how we think. I know that's kind of how I think too often. We as Mennonites maybe think a little more like Jews than um, Gentiles. Circumcision was a sign that you were part of God's chosen people. In fact, the word Gentile means non-Jew or not a part of God's chosen people. You say, how is circumcision the problem here? How is circumcision a sin? Obviously, it wasn't a sin in itself. How is simply being obedient to God's word and, circ and, use and circumcising in this case a problem? Well, the act of circumcision and following God's command isn't the problem, but the arrogance that came along with that 
is the problem. And may I say the same thing maybe about we as Mennonites. Being Mennonite, following, the, uh, following Scripture like God has called us to, living out Scripture like God has called us to, and like we ask to do, or we ask each other to do as a church, isn't the problem. Being obedient to the Word of God isn't the problem. But what becomes the problem is arrogance. When we think what we have and what we do and how we do it is what saves us, we got a problem. Paul cuts right to the chase and highlights the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles had the highest contempt for one another. In fact, the hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles was so immense, now listen to this, that the Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. In fact, it was, lawful, unlaw, it was unlawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. Jews regarded Gentiles as sick and perverted pagans who engaged in idol worship and gross immorality. Actually, they did all those things, right? And who had no regard for the true God, and the truth of the matter is that's exactly who they were. But again, their arrogance missed the point, and eventually miss the Messiah. We were probably saying none of us are like that. We're all a lot more like the Jews, I think, than the Gentiles. I think too often our arrogance is a little bit more on that camp than the other. You see, they had a lot going for them, kind of like we do, but it led to arrogance and eventually led to them missing the Messiah. The outermost court surrounding the temple was the court of the Gentiles. So you could become a proselyte Jew, and you could end up just going to the outer courts. But after the outer courts was the courts of the women, and then the courts of the, Gent- or the, courts of the Jews, and then the Holy of Holies. If you were a proselyte Jew, you could just get to the outer courts, and you couldn't walk into the temple. And you couldn't even walk into the women's court, and for sure not the court of the Jews. In fact, it was so serious, if you did, there, um, there were signs written throughout that stated what would happen to you. And in 1871, one of those signs was discovered, and the inscription read like this, Let no one of any other nation come into the fence and barriers around the holy place. Whosoever will be taking, whosoever will be taken doing so, will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. So if you were a Gentile, which we all are here, you couldn't get past the outer courts, no matter if you were a proselyte or anything. Well, if you weren't a proselyte, you wouldn't get to the outer courts. That was the division at that time. But for both Jews and Gentiles, they had a problem. The Gentiles thought they could never get close to God. They were immoral heathens without God. But the Jews were also in very bad position because of their arrogance and missed the Messiah. Paul reminds the Ephesian church, both Jews and Gentiles, that they had the same problem that was sin. And, the same, and that is the same problem we all have today. That brings us to the next one. Remember what Christ did, verses 13 to 15. Um, we can get into their... Um, and see what Christ did for us. I'm not going to read those verses, but I think I'll start with verse, I will read verse 13, because that's the verse for all of us. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What a beautiful verse. What 
Incredible verse. That verse should bring tears to our eyes. We had no hope, but because of Jesus Christ and the cross, we can get further than just the outer courts. We can come into the Holy of Holies like we are today. Just like we talked about in the beginning of chapter 2, the verses in the beginning of chapter 2, being dead in our trespasses, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in children of disobedience. And then we come to the verse um, 3, or verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us. That's where we're at this morning. That's why we can come together. Because of Christ, we can be here. Um, And I think... Um, John Petershawn did a great job of it, again, reminding us that the love of Christ trumps all. By the blood of the cross, verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near. And then verse 14, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, now verse 15, Jesus might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Verse 16, reconcile us both to God, and Jesus preached peace to you who were afar off. Verse after verse, sentence after sentence, image after image, Paul is reminding the church and us here at Weavertown today that we have no ground to stand on if we, were, if we want to boast. The blood of Jesus Christ made the difference for all of us, and without the blood, we were all lost and without hope in this world. Do we get that? Do we spend the time to let that sink in? that we were without hope without Christ. And because of the blood of the cross, we can be here today. He became our peace, verse 14, and he broke down the walls of of partition. And I'm going to talk about that just a little bit here. What does it mean for Christ to become our peace? In order to make peace, we need to be at war, right? And we already know about that war between the Jews and the Gentiles. It took Christ to come to break down the walls of division between us. Billy Graham so often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I've heard that. I don't think that quote made much sense to me. So I understood what it meant for Christ to die for my sins. That means we're equal at the foot of the cross. Do we get that? Do we believe that? Fill in the blanks of someone in your church who's born again, and yet you just somehow don't think he's quite as good as you. I think we could probably put names in there. That's not the case. We are equal at the foot of the cross. There's none better than the other. All our gifts are needed. We're equally needed as a church. As Christians, there shouldn't be a division among us. None of us should think we are better than others. We need to work together as a church and give into each other. We all have gifts that are needed. And or is what I say, remember we are equal at the cross. God broke down our war that we have to do. We've had conflicts. We have still looking to break down that middle wall of partition. Okay, I don't say that there shouldn't be any division or struggle being part of the church. There's plenty of admonition in the Bible tells us to guard against false teaching and incorrect doctrine. I'm not saying that. Um, in fact, I'm just going to read a couple of verses just to make myself clear. Paul told Timothy, for the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myth. Now, St. Paul who's writing this. I'm just saying this to be clear. Um, This is not talking about um, 
incorrect doctrine. In Romans, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says this again, and, his most, and this is his most dramatic and forceful admonition. Um, I'm sorry, in Galatians. Even if we who are an angel from... Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. So I'm not saying we don't battle over incorrect doctrine. Um, we need to find the right way of doing that too. Paul isn't saying that anything goes in the church to keep unity. It is okay for us to disagree when it comes to um, the true doctrines of Christ. And I know that gets a little complicated, but I just want to make that clear that we understand that... We don't just say anything goes in the church, and that's um, unity is more important than um, correct doctrine. Paul is saying in these verses that when it comes to the fundamental points of our salvation, the solution for our sin problem isn't limited to how smart I am or to my opinions or to what I want. And most church splits don't have to do with church doctrine as much as have to do with my opinions. William Barclay said, The unity which Jesus achieves is not achieved by blotting out racial characteristics. It is achieved by making all men of all nations into Christians. It produces people who are friends with each other because they are friends with God. It produces people who are one because they meet in the presence of God by the way of the cross. All of us have the same problem, right? That's sin, and all of us have the same solution, and that's Jesus. And that brings us to the third one. Remember, we are invited to be a part of God's family, his beautiful church. And that's um, found in Ephesians 15 to 22, and we're going to get into that right now. How did God create the church? And I started out with the question, what is the church, or um, why church? And I'm going to just talk about how God created the church, and then why church. First thing he did to, first thing he did to create the church was he abolished the enmity. When you think of the word abolish, I think of the word abolitionist, um, especially during slavery. You had the abolitionists who abolished slavery. Well, Jesus Christ abolished enmity, or he abolished the war that we have sometimes in our churches. I don't know. We keep on picking that up sometimes, but Jesus made it very clear that he wanted to abolish the enmity, abolish the differences, and bring us to the foot of the cross. Second thing he did in creating his church, according to verse 15, was he reconciled Jews and Gentiles, and he made one man out of twain. God wants to do that here at Weavertown. He wants to make one out of the whole group. He's not looking for my opinions alone. He's not looking for your opinions alone. He's looking for a group that works together to worship him. He brought Jews and Gentiles to the cross. Third thing he did was he preached peace to you who were far off. This was more than just them getting along as Jews and Gentiles, but making it a trait of a Christian. We get that? If you have a hard time getting along with everyone around you, you're missing what a Christian should be. A Christian should be a person who gets along with people around them. Okay? I'm not, remember, I didn't say we can't disagree when it comes to doctrine and things like that or truth. But as a Christian, a trait of the Christian is someone who works together in unity. I think it's clear if you look at verse 17. Jesus built his church on this premise, and us living in unity needs to be an important part 
of our church today. Fourth thing we see in verse 18 is he gave us access to the Father by Jesus Christ. Here we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity. I'm not going to get into that, but um, in verse 18 you can see that. Next thing, in, uh, next thing we see, the fifth thing we see, God created the church by making us citizens of his household. Um, I'm sorry, that was the fifth. The sixth thing we see in verse 20, we became part of the building block of his church. And then the last thing we see, or maybe I should say the first thing, is we see Jesus is the cornerstone. And I'm not going to go into the details on each one of those, but those are all building blocks. Those are all things that God did, or that Christ did in creating his church. The last thing, which is the first thing I said, why did God create church? And we'll find that in verse 21 and 22. Um, we're going to cover that. So I want to answer those questions, and then we're going to close. And I know there's a bit there. I'll try to um, get through there quickly. But why did God create church? And I think this passage gives us those answers. First thing I have is to show the work, in, work of reconciliation to the world. Go back to verses 16 and 17. God not only built the church through reconciliation, but he built it to show that reconciliation to the world. So we as a church and getting along with each other, is part of the reason God built the church. Now, that sounds beautiful as I preach it this morning, but how about living it? That's why Christ built the church. So he can be an example to the, so we can be an example to the world what it looks like to get along and be in unity together. Becoming a Christian doesn't just change our relationship with God, we know this, but it brings us into relationship with others. You don't become a Christian simply to get right with God. You also become a Christian to join a community and to learn to work together. When you become a Christian, you become part of a new community, and your identity as a part of a new community supersedes any other identity you have. That's why the Jews and Gentiles could overcome all the barriers, because God superseded that um, in them getting along. I love what D.A. Carson said. Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We get that? Second thing I have is the church becomes a place where Christ dwells. And I started out with that. Um, and that is such a neat thought. When I think of that temple on the Temple Mount, and we being the holy temple, like it says in verse 21 here this morning, um, we are a place where Christ dwells. Paul uses three images of the church, and I'm going to cover these three images. Um, first of all, we are citizens with God's people. Now, I know a lot of us are proud Americans who are proud to be a citizens, of Ameri uh, citizens of this country, but we are much greater. We are a much greater citizen of God's church. Um, and I may say this even maybe in a... Um, hope it's not taken out of context. We should be proud of being members here at Weavertown and the church here at Weavertown. I know we're proud of being members of God's universal church, but as members or whichever church you're part of, um, we need to um, say, thank God that we can be members of God's church. It gets a little more intimate than that. And the second thing is we are not just part of his kingdom or citizens, but we're part of his family. We see that in verse 21. If Bill Gates were to adopt a child, what would be the repercussions of that child? Or let's say if the President of the United States would adopt you, 
How would that affect you? How would that change who you are? We are fellow citizens. We are actually family of Jesus Christ, adopted children of Jesus. We understand that. And that should affect how, who we are and what we do. We're also God's temple. The third thing. We as a church have become the holy temple. We not only are part of his family, but now let's get into the third one. We are now a part of his holy temple. That's amazing. If you're not amazed by that, I guess probably should go home. Um, we are a part of God's holy temple. We are the holy temple as we get together um, as a church. For a thousand years, the temple of Jerusalem had been the focus of God's presence to the world. But now Paul says God is doing a new thing. He's building a new temple, this time located among people, more practically in his church. The building isn't God's house. Together you are part of God's house, his holy temple. The temple was made, um, we are part of his holy temple. You see the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and we're the building blocks. This means that God actually inhabits his church. This is the focus of God's presence in the world. If you want to go where God's presence is, you do what? You come to, into his church, his people. You used to have to go to the temple. Now, if you want to go to where God's presence is, you can come to church where God dwells. You see how this gets more and more intimate. Fellow citizens are sort of close. Family is a little closer. And then we have the building blocks of his temple that each one of us are. So if you want to ask the question, why church? You have to come to grips with the fact that God has chosen to create a new people, a new community. He has chosen to dwell among his people here at Weavertown. That's why we come to church. That's an incredible opportunity to come to his temple. Living in a community in our church is a hassle sometimes. It's inconvenient at times, but I hope you'll see why it's worth it. So when those struggles are real, and I think if we're real honest with ourselves, we remember some of the struggles we have had in the past or maybe still are in the middle of and you say, that's too much hassle for me. I'm not really interested in that hassle. I'm tired of that hassle. I'm tired of trying to get along with people. Remember what you're doing. It's about more than attending a service. It means relationship. People deeply committed to each other and committed to what God wants to do in his church. Sounds like a tall order. More than we might think we can possibly accomplish. A people, remember, at peace. A people reconciled to one another and a people who are a holy temple. Let that sink in. Just a bit before we close. Can we accomplish those three things here at Weavertown? I'm going to just turn to the next chapter. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I won't tell you why right now. Um, you can ask me for that story later. But this verse has to do with the church of Jesus Christ. This verse, I used to think for many years, was about me, you know, what God can do in my life. But this church is what God can do in the church. Or this verse is about what God can do in the church. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. The verses for us here at Weaver Town are for every church, Bible-believing in church. God is looking to do 
exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think in this church. And he can. He can do those three things I just talked about. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. It's a tall order. We can't do it, but he can. He can do immeasurably more than any of us ask or think. Um, And God wants to do that this morning. We often use this verse for ourselves, but I think God's using this verse for the church of Jesus Christ. God wants us in this church at Weavertown to be a beautiful body of Christ, a people at peace, a people reconciled to one another, a people who are a holy temple, a people who are a dwelling place for God. Can we be that? That means a church who works together in its unity and finds unity working with each other. Let's kneel together for prayer.